Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So Disney, they pulled out a billion-dollar project which was an office space and I want to say like 2,000 jobs that averaged $120,000 a year. Okay. They're not like moving the park or shit. They're just no, they're, they're not moving the park, but they have billions of dollars planned in development. Yeah. Okay. And I think that they're just going to do a death by a thousand paper cuts and make their point. So yeah, they did last week, pulled out, that's what a billion dollar project because a couple of things it also involved relocating employees from California to Florida mm-hmm. and people didn't want to do that. Mm. So they were quitting. Oh, all right. It's complicated. Yeah. But... One of the things that you're going to find and Michigan went through this problem is if you don't have good schools, you don't attract big companies who need good talent. Yeah. Yeah, and then apparently, I saw Fox News was doing more layoffs, so I Googled Fox News while I was waiting. So Tucker has a studio, full studio up in Maine, where he records, and apparently Fox News went in and just gutted the shit out of it over the weekend. Oh my God. (laughs) And then everybody's upset because a memo came out of Fox News' employee handbook. And you must refer to people by their preferred pronouns is in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> people are allowed to dress with the gender in which they identify. No. So uh, now, yeah. You guessed what is. I, right after DePaul, it was literally like in the six months after DePaul, when I, before I worked at Broadway Chicago, that I got a temp job. This guy I knew who was a choreographer, he had this temp gig general motors had a convention every other year okay a worldwide convention it was in orlando and there was eight presidents of general motors eight vps there's general general motors north america south america europe asia whatever and each one of them had to have a business assistant assigned to them and a personal assistant so this choreographer would always employ actors, comedians, dancers, whatever, to be the personal assistant. So I did that for a week in Orlando. I had the European guy. <laughs> and other, there were three Rockettes who were with me, one stand-up comedian, a couple writers, and a couple of other actors. It was amazing. My guy was the sweetest guy, and I remember they unveiled their huge... Don't even ask me what the name of the car was, but their huge unveil was to Don Henley's Boys of Summer. <laughs> in, in the main tent, all of a sudden, it got summer lights and everything switched down and just, it was Nuts. Like, Not. I, when I was a cater waiter for Wolfgang Puck, I worked the, oh my God, totally blanking on name of guys who pounded Microsoft. Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he had a CEO summit every year. It was all these CEOs from all over the world at one networking event. It was like Jamie Dimon was there. 
And all the other caterers like, I have no idea who they are. I'm like, these are some of the worst people on the planet. Bezos, of course, was there. But yeah. It was just a, it's a different world, which is somewhat we're going to get into today, later in the episode. Okay, let's do it. Let's wrap this. Let's wrap this thing up. Oh, right. Welcome to Omalort, Chicago history you didn't learn in school. I am joined by John Zinn, and today we are going to wrap up our series on the Tylenol murders. How are you doing, John? I'm good. How are you, Internet? <laughs> Internet. I am uh, I'm good. I got my hair cut today. Nice. It's looking cute. It's a little summery. It's summery. I wear a hat a lot in the winter because I'm in Chicago, so I just let it go. But uh, it was time. Yeah. Also, last night, for some reason, I decided to listen to early Ani DeFranco yeah. and specifically Every State Line. Okay. And that it's more relevant now than it was when she wrote it. I imagine. Yeah. Just a little thing. Also, I have a quick correction to make about the Unabomber, who we brought up in last week's episode. Though he did grow up in Illinois, the Unabomber went to Harvard and not the University of Chicago, as I thought. The University of Chicago was just part of the plot of one of his first bombs. So I just wanted to clarify, he did not go to University of Chicago, but it, there is a reason why there was would be a Chicago connection. Noted. Noted. Now, we are going to discuss the response by Johnson and Johnson. Oh, yes. We've been waiting for this part. <laughs> the general consensus is this is the gold standard for crisis PR management. It's worth noting they didn't have a thing called crisis PR management in 1982. I was going to, yeah. Yeah. And I read articles about this. I've listened to business school people talk about it. One of them was an executive who was involved in it. I, professor of business ethics, I want to say at Notre Dame. I'll include them all in the show links. But it really is considered to be the gold standard. Immediately upon receiving the news, executives meet at the Johnson & Johnson headquarters in CEO James Burke's office. Tylenol is made and sold by an acquisition of theirs, McNeil Labs. And among these executives is newly appointed McNeil chairman David Collins, who recalls they had no idea what to do. And according to the Tribune, Burke turned and pointed to Collins. You take care of this, Burke said, according to Collins. This is your responsibility. Nothing like trial by fire in your new job. So Collins takes a helicopter. They were in New Jersey. And he takes it to the McNeil headquarters, which is in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania. And they immediately set up a war room. But he knew that he needed boots on the ground in Chicago. Being an Oak Park native, he calls his college roommate and a local lawyer named Paul Noland, 
who had recently started a firm in Wheaton, Illinois, with Francis Mike Hero. It's worth noting that all three went to Fenwick, a Catholic high school in Oak Park, together. These two lawyers, they had immediately to the morgue, and they were there for about a half an hour, confirming that there were dead people. And then shortly after that, two more people are pronounced dead. And this is from the Tribune. Two more cyanide-related deaths would soon be confirmed in DuPage County, and Harrow represented the hospital where one of those two victims died, with the Healthcare Privacy Act, known as HIPAA, still 14 years away, he was able to use his contacts to gather information. Nolan told the Tribune, we had more facts than anybody. And this is confirmed by an Elmhurst detective. He was the only member of Task Force One, the Phantom Menace, who criticized J&J. We're going to have some fun later, and the J&J part is actually pretty dry, but we'll get there later. From the Tribune, in the very beginning, Collins said the authorities didn't know how to deal with Johnson & Johnson, whose employees and plants still needed to be investigated. He says the corporation leaned on Nolan and Harrow's connections to law enforcement to help form a relationship with the task force. The Tribune goes on to state, Collins said the company voluntarily provided lists of disgruntled current and former employees, as well as unhappy customers. It was a start of an unusual partnership between the police and a company amid an investigation that had not yet determined whether the murders had happened while the bottles were under J&J's control. J&J is helping in the investigation. By the afternoon of October 1st, the company pulls more than 93,000 bottles from the batch number connected with the Kellerman and Janice murders. And to be clear, recalls, recalls like this were not a thing before this, right? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I'm pretty sure they weren't. And there was actually a really good, one of the videos that I'm going to include in the links was like, like the no-brainer that it was to yank them. Later, they yank another 171,000 bottles sharing the lot number from McFarland's bottle. Mm-hmm. Then they shut down manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The FBI said that there's no, not FBI, FDA. We've got an alphabet soup happening in this episode. Yes. The FDA said publicly that it couldn't have happened in the labs, but behind the scenes were a little bit more willing to say we don't have all the information. But what they were doing is trying to not cause an all-out national panic. And now, remember, Jane Byrne, she banned the sale of Tylenol on the night of October 1st when she did her midnight press conference. Very next day, she took it further by banning distribution of Tylenol. Now, you might wonder why this is important. 
That means hospitals can't deliver Tylenol 3 to their patients. Yeah. So Byrne agrees to meet with the lawyer duo. From the Tribune, Collins said he wanted to explain to the mayor that withdrawing all Tylenol-branded products would present health problems for a lot of people and cause difficulties for medical centers. The men didn't think it would help, but they knew the mayor casually. Byrne's late husband, Bill, had been best friends with Collins' older brother. Okay. There's a reason why I'm including all of this other than that's like just so Chicago. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bill Byrne, the Collins brothers, and Nolan all went to the University of Notre Dame together. In Chicago politics, there were few more powerful fraternities in 1982 than the Fighting Irish Alumni. And they all hung out at Corcoran's. <laughs> they probably all did hang out at Corcoran's. Oh, Eamon Vaughn, the owner of Corcoran's, died. Oh, he did. Oh, I bet that, dude. Oh, wow. Yeah. This week. But we're going to get back to... We'll, we'll, all right. By the way, she just told him she stood firm on her banning the distribution. Yeah, okay. We're going to look at what, the chances that this was done in production. So the Reiner and McFarland pills were produced in a lab in Texas and the Janice and Kellerman pills in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it wasn't done in the labs, right? Yeah. I don't, it wasn't done in the labs. And in fact, on October 5th, chief toxicologist of the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, Michael Schaefer, visited the Pennsylvania facility. And from the Tribune, after spending a morning there, he ruled out the possibility that the bottles were contaminated during manufacturing, telling reporters that, quote, no human hands touched the Tylenol or its ingredients in the automated mixing and packaging. That really rules out in the lab. He did find potassium cyanide in three unlocked spaces to which over a thousand employees had access. But the FDA tested it and it didn't share the same chemical footprint as what was used in the murders. Weird. I wonder if that's normal to have it there. It didn't seem to raise any hairs, no. but McNeil then made a promise to keep it locked. Gosh. It's good. It's good. That same day, October 5th, they pull all Tylenol and issue a memo to 450,000 healthcare workers, hospitals, and customers saying they were taking it all back, quote, lock, stock, and barrel. In total, they recalled over 31 million bottles at a cost of around $100 million. So the pills are sent to J&J. &J. The ones from Chicago are sent to a lab near here. And they're sent to J&J, &J, the FDA, and other alphabet agencies for testing. According to federal records, they test over 10 million capsules. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's important to remember that in Chicago, initially, people were told to toss out their Tylenol on their own, 
which is what I would do. Yes. And I'm also betting that a lot of people nationwide just threw it out. Yeah. This is what they recalled from the stores or what people had sent in or given to the police. On October 21st, they find 11 pills and a bottle of 50 that are tainted tablets. And it was a bottle that was returned to a Dominic's on the north side. Oh, wow. Like, could you give me which one? I know. <laughs> Four days later, cyanide was detected in another 50 count bottle. And this was purchased by the wife of a DuPage County judge at Frank's Finer Foods in Wheaton. It's a person in Illinois, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Who has a car? I'm just going to go with they have a car. They have a car, yeah. They have a car. (laughs) Can you imagine trying to just do all of that on mass transit? That's what she said. God. Or taking a cab. Taking a cab, right? No. From the Tribune, James Zagel who was the head of the Illinois State Police at the time of the murders, testified in 1983 that he had worked closely with Johnson & Johnson in the investigation's earliest days. He said he approved of the decision to let the company test the capsules, even as authorities were looking to see if a disgruntled J&J employee was behind the poisonings. It's also worth noting they did an interview recently with the wife of the DuPage County judge and they ran their DNA again. They're running a lot of DNA back to our friends. Tylenol was concerned that they would not be able to bounce back from this. And insiders agreed. In fact, an ad exec named Jerry Della Femina told the New York times on October 8th, 1982, There may be an advertising person who thinks he can solve this. And if they find him, I want to hire him because then I want him to turn our water cooler into a wine cooler. And they thought about changing the name, just doing a whole rebrand. But Collins said no, and he blames it on being a stubborn Irish man. Okay. They settled on safer packaging. Cook County had already passed ordinances on seals, but the Tylenol law was passed at the federal level in 1983. And by 1989, the FDA had full federal guidelines. Now, it's worth noting, they had the technology in place for the seals and whatnot. They just hadn't rolled it out. They probably didn't. Yeah, there's probably never as big a concern around it before as there was now. Yeah, They probably had the thought, like, this is kind of easy to get into, but it would also cost money to add to it. And I'm not going to fault them because it's not like they could see this happening to their product. Less than two months after the murders, they introduce the Tylenol in the triple seal packaging we have today. From the Tribune, in announcing the new packaging, in November 1982, CEO Burke said Johnson & Johnson considered it 
a moral imperative as well as good business to restore Tylenol to the same prominence it held in the market prior to the poisonings. And I'll guess they bounce back pretty okay. We're going to get there. Yeah. <laughs> and he told reporters, all of us can demonstrate a united determination not to allow our lives to be ruled by acts of terrorism, not to allow America to be poisoned the way these seven people were poisoned. And it was marketing magic. Like they offered to give free people free pills. They had a telephone campaign where employees and their families would come in and work phone banks. The following year, they resumed their share of the market. Bet they did. I knew you were going to say that. And what an American thing to say that has been said many times since then. We will, mm -hmm. not, we will not be afraid. We can't, you can't scare us. But it's worth noting in 1986 in New York, they found poison Tylenol. This is four years later. It's four years later. The general consensus, I'm omitting a lot of really boring technical stuff about packaging. They're pretty sure what the, they did was cut the bottom of the bottle and then put it back together. Cause you wouldn't check the bottom of your bottle. Yeah. Whoever investigated in New York, like they, they did s several tests and that's their theory. And it wasn't nearly the panic that we didn't even hear about it. Yeah. There's only one reason I know about it. And we'll get to that in a little bit. What makes it different? Tylenol or Johnson and Johnson has had other product issues since then. And what I think makes this different is they operated in line with their company's mission, which was to put customers first. I listened to a podcast about a General Electric and a Jack Welsh. And there was a time that companies would put their customers and their employees first. Now, there was an economist, particularly in what's called the Chicago School, which is what makes people now beholden to their shareholders and not their employees or their customers. Yes, because we can't. If you made a very quick decision like they did, they probably did not know how it would affect them financially yet. They didn't know when they did the recall, but they just did it. Because it was the right thing to do. And their stock, you can imagine, plummeted. Took the that. stock market goes crazy at the thought of not renewing the debt ceiling. Think about what it would do if poison Tylenol. Yeah, I really feel like this might be one of the last acts of when a corporation at such a magnitude did the right thing. Right thing and actually chose generosity and safety. Yeah. And it's worth noting the families did sue them because remember, they did have the technology for the safety seals. And eight years later, they ended up settling with the families for an undisclosed amount. Got it. That's that. 
And I just want to talk about, and we're going to shift gears. I was reading interviews with the family members. And I'm going to put them in the show notes. They're absolutely heartbreaking. One of them, and I understand this, that every time they see safety measures in place, like the milk safety thing, the milk lid, it reignites their grief. I can't imagine looking at the seal of, of a, on milk and having it induce trauma. This is, at the heart of it, generational destruction. And my heart goes out to them. Again, I'll put it in the show notes. I know we laughed a lot during this series, and I think we're about to laugh a whole lot more. But I just wanted to be mindful that at the heart of it, these were people involved. Yes. Yeah. Okay. When I do my research, I stick to reputable sources, meaning I avoid blogs or things that don't appear to be necessarily reputable. Maybe it might have a bias. Everything has a bias. However, Jim Lewis's website brought me down a rabbit hole to even crazier stuff than what we've already discussed. Oh, man. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay, all right. <laughs> also, throughout this process of writing this script, I kept wondering, if this happened today, what would the response be? Would yeah. people, yeah, would people call it a false flag? A mm. psyop? Mm. Would they tweet, you can take my Tylenol from my cold, dead hands? Jim Lewis's website references a book called Tylenol Mafia by Scott Bartz, which was released in 2011. I pondered reading it for research purposes. However, it's about 500 pages long, and many of the reviews called it hideous. So I'm going to read the synopsis to you because this is also a very long synopsis. On September 29th, 1982, seven people in Chicago died after taking extra strength Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. Officials have long cited the scarcity of physical evidence and apparent lack of motive to explain why they never solved the Tylenol mur murders. However, new revelations and information not previously disclosed, tell a very different story of a crime that should have been solved. In a story, both fascinating and dramatic in its warnings, the Tylenol Mafia rips away the facade of an investigation that J&J &J CEO James Burke labeled a, quote, a demonstration without parallel of government and business working with the news media to help protect the public. This gripping, metic meticulously documented expose unearths the troubling details of an investigation corrupted by well-connected corporate executives and politically motivated government officials who simply buried the truth inside a shadow legal system inaccessible to everyday Americans. 
Yeah. Also, I'm not reading that book because I think it might be propaganda. Yeah, it looks like it's it's very tabloidy. <laughs> Talk is very tabloidy. I don't know. I'm sure there was corruption and nervousness and everything in Johnson and Johnson at that point. But at oh. the end of the day, they did take a large action. Yes. Then I did some more digging. I even read a thread on Reddit, which I will include in the show notes. John, do you know what a truther is? Is that like a truth birther and that kind of stuff? A birth, yes, yes. These are what we call conspiracy theorists. They call themselves... Which is just, you don't know the real origin of like... Bingo! Bingo, they have some special knowledge. Yeah. And I found the Tylenol murder truthers. All right, here we go. I love analyzing a good conspiracy theory. And we're going to do that. But first, I want to take on a digression that I think is important for understanding conspiracies. And it might be helpful for the listeners. There is a guy named Bill Cooper. And he is considered to be the OG of the modern-day conspiracy movement. In fact, he published a book listing all the conspiracies of all time. Okay. <laughs> yes. And he's getting shout-outs from the Wu-Tang crew and other rappers. Okay. His book is the most read book in jails and prisons. And the idea that gravitates people towards Bill Cooper, in I'm paraphrasing a quote, is we're all screwed, and Bill Cooper can tell you why. Yeah. And if you take that as the premise for most conspiracies, they make sense. I'm not saying they're true, but you can get the thinking context behind it. Yes, and you want to find, I imagine that if you are in prison, of course you want to find, why is this happening to me? And what is the reason? And somebody has put me here and I feel powerless. So what? how did I get here? I get it. I get, yeah. get the road. I get the path. And you see it a lot. The idea that there's a deep state controlling the finances as opposed to like having a conversation about the pitfalls of capitalism or what we're calling capital. You, it, you don't have to address the real issue too. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of different ways people come at conspiracy theories that it just, it makes it make sense for me as opposed to just like jaw droppingly thinking this person is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Except for, flat earthers because that doesn't fix a problem and i do think they're crazy i read a book on flat earthers last year okay yeah by kelly Weil from the daily beast over the edge i think it's called and i had to tell my parents that i am in fact a dome earther oh my god i am the grand theater i'm out of my element i'm going to recommend a book for a good understanding of how conspiracies work in the internet era and I recommend Elizabeth Williamson's Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy, and the Battle for Truth. 
Okay. And that premise is Sandy Hook is ground zero for the modern day internet conspiracy, which because we didn't have an internet, I also don't think anybody came to being a Tylenol truther right away. It it seems, seems yeah. Yeah. It seems to consist of four people. I went to Alex Jones InfoWars site to see if Tylenol murders even came up. They didn't. It's a good conspiracy that has lived. The first is Bartz. And Bartz, he wrote the book. And he was a former employee of Johnson & Johnson. He also sued them in a whistleblower case. I had someone in the legal profession look at the document, which they called, and I quote, messy. Okay. Which made me feel a tad better because I can usually read legal things unless it's really specific. I couldn't make out of details out of this. And I'll read you the actual email. And it's also long, but I think it's worth looking at. Wow. That was dot dot a journey. From what I can tell in this messy order and memo, Bartz is a plaintiff and used to work for J&J, but he is filing on behalf of the United States as a quitam case, a type of case which allows a private individual to sue on behalf of the U.S. for fraud. So the alleged fraud, Medicare, slash aid fraud, price fixing and such. But in order for that type of cause of action to stand, hyphen, the behavior at issue slash claim at issue can't have been revealed in other public places before the date when the action is filed. So if the fraud slash allegation of fraud is discussed in governmental hearings, already has actions filed, has been reported in the media, the action can't stand unless the plaintiff is the original source of the information. And even if they are the source of the information, if another Quitam case has been filed, it's barred for all other plaintiffs except the government. Following so far? Okay. Okay. Someone can't do the same thing. Okay. Yeah. In the case here, there had already been multiple cases alleging the reimbursement and price fraud inducements and kickbacks to sell, including another Ketom case that was eventually dismissed too. The idea being, if the damning information is already public information, the U.S., the actual injured party, is on notice of potential fraudulent activity and can file a complaint or start other proceedings on their own. They don't need someone to stand in in their place and file. Okay. Now, I looked up J&J in the last few years, and there was a case that did have key tan. This is from justice.gov. It was actually whistleblowers. And because it says the civil, and this was not related to Thailand Motors, but it's a J&J case. The civil settlement described above resolves four lawsuits pending in federal court 
in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania under the Keytam or whistleblower provision of the False Claims Act, blah, blah, blah. As part of today's resolution, the whistleblowers in those cases will share $112 million from the federal share of the settlement amount. So in case you were... Yeah. In case you were wondering why someone would bring this sort of case, usually it's whistleblowers. I didn't read the book. I did watch a 25-minute video with Bartz, and we'll debunk that in a little bit. Another player in the Tylenol Truther movement is the daughter of one of the women who died. Really? And that's why I brought up Bill Cooper. And I have compassion for that. You watch your mom die and you want answers. Yes. We're screwed. So this conspiracy theory is going to tell me why. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Grief. Yeah. And notably, none of the other families want to be associated with her. There is a public relations guy named Jack O'Dwyer, who just seems to have a vendetta for Johnson and Johnson. Now, when I got to these three, I started, there's another component of most conspiracy theories, and that is the grift. I started to sniff a grift here, and I was waiting for pop-up ads trying to sell me boner pills or gold. Then, John, the weirdest thing happened. An advertisement with Spenguli, Bozo, and Cookie flashed on my screen talking about Bozo's food buckets. I know who they are, but I don't know what the food bucket are. Oh, you don't know about food buckets? It's like a Bozo product? No, okay. Food buckets are sold by Alex Jones, Ben Shapiro, Jim Baker. They're storable food for when the apocalypse happens. Oh, okay. Okay. So like Baker's buckets are called, they're called Baker's buckets. Uh, And they're all made by the same company. Of course they are. I was inordinately proud because Bozo has his buckets. But the thought of like Bozo and Cookie and Spenguli selling Bozo's food buckets. In all seriousness, I found a fundraising video. The daughter is, she wants to put together a documentary company to do a documentary on the truth. I'm going to tell you, these people suck at grifting because there wasn't an embedded link to the GoFundMe. I also want to say, GoFundMe, when I said the grift, they fund legitimate projects. But prior to the Give, Send, Go, it was also a hotbed for grifters and scammers. Notably, she made about $1,500 of her $75,000 goal. She made, say it again, she made $100 of? No, she made $1,500 of her $75,000. Okay. Okay. Yeah, maybe if she'd had an embedded link. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm just going to say about the Go Send Me 
I used to be home at Christmas and I'd watch a segment on Fox News about somebody complaining about something. And I would automatically Google to see if they had a GoFundMe. And they usually did. Not the, some of the people on, I don't want to call them news people, the personalities. But this would be the people whose HOA wouldn't let them put up X for Christmas. Right. The everyday people. Yeah. (laughs) And I listened to a podcast called Knowledge Fight, where it's two comedians who make fun of Alex Jones. And one of the first episodes I listened to was Roger Stone get mad that everyone calls him a grifter. And in the very next breath, he encouraged people to visit his website. I found a fourth person, Alan Bryce. Do you know who Alan Bryce is? No. He was the artistic director of Center Stage in Federal Way, Washington. Okay. You have my interest. He wrote, a morality musical called Death on the Supermarket Shelf. Whoops. Notably, it did not star Michael Shannon, Tracy Letts, or the Empire Carpet Guy, for that matter. In fact, what? They were booked. It didn't get reviewed by any of the major papers that I could tell. I found two, one was a website and one was a blog spot. I'll put them in the show notes if you're curious. It did get a feature in the Federal Way Daily out there. At which point in time, the creative team said it was pretty hopeful they could transfer it to New York. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure Jimmy Needleanna Jr. was thinking, this is our next Danny. (laughs) Now I've set up the players. We're going to get into the quote-unquote truth that they know that we don't know. We're going to start at O'Dwyer's PR website. The Bart's book charges a vast conspiracy by J&J employees and suppliers. The FDA, the FBI, local and state police, public officials, media, the courts, and PR firms. The object was to save J&J from being sued for hundreds of of million dollars. Yeah, we're all too tired. That didn't happen. <laughs> There's way too many people per conspiracy oh, theory to go oh. for 40 years. Exactly. Like and like much of unrelated capitalism. No. <laughs> the CPD wouldn't even investigate with the FBI, but they're gonna engage in a four decades long conspiracy for J and J. It's just ridiculous. And I told somebody just the conspiracy and J and J paid them off. I'm like, no, there's no theory about that. They're like, then why would they keep their mouths quiet? Yeah. I didn't research too much into if they would have had a lawsuit if it had been done. So their theory is that it happened not in the lab, but during the distribution process. Now they did lose a hundred million dollars doing a product recall and they did settle the lawsuits. And I heard that they ranged from a hundred thousand to 2 million, but I don't know. Part of the conspiracy is they waited for eight years. And then I'm going to tell you why there's a good reason to wait for eight years. 
remember when the window fell off the CNA insurance building and it decapitated that mother who was walking down the street with her kid? They settled years later and they were clearly at fault. I asked my dad who had or did at the time, I can't remember, worked for CNA and has been in insurance his entire life. They were clearly at fault. Why did they wait? And he's like, they're an insurance company. They know exactly how much they're going to have to pay out. They invest the money so that the interest will cover the cost. I'm not saying it's the greatest thing, but it makes it make sense. We are on to the next part of the conspiracy. From O'Dwyer, critics, however, including Bartz, contend that there was plenty of proof that the Tylenols were poisoned well in in the distribution chain of J&J and was not the work of some quote-unquote mad person running from store to store. The proof cited by Bartz Bartz, is that Lynn Reiner obtained her poisoned Tylenols from a secure hospital pharmacy. So Lynn Reiner, her daughter is, one of her kids is the one who's the truther. And she had just gotten home from the hospital. She had a baby. I'm not clear on this. And maybe if I read the book, I can be more clear. But in the interview I watched with Bartz, it makes it sound like the hospitals sent her home with, with Tylenol. Does that? I've had many hospital visits in the past 10 years with my parents. I don't, I don't remember that. I mean, Should I be had, of course, this was 80. We'll, we'll get into it. I had surgery I mean, there are pharmacies in hospitals. Yes. yes. There are pharmacies in hospitals where you can get pills. Yeah. Yes. But my mom made sure I had over-the-counter pain pills prior to my surgery. Because who wants to deal with that? Additionally, my mom was a nurse. And she worked in an OB before I was born. So that was a long time ago. But. She had a baby in 1982. I asked her if the hospital sent her home with Tylenol. And she's said, no, they sent her home with formula. They also sent her home with one of those little vomit trays, which I used to turn into a bathtub for my Barbies. Yeah. Cute. So what? Pink. It was yellow. (laughs) And then... My mom did say that she didn't have a baby in the Chicagoland area. So I then further asked if anybody had a baby in 1982 in the Chicagoland area. And I got two responses. No, they didn't send them home with drugs. Typically, if you're going to go to the pharmacy, the hospital, is because you're filling your prescription. Yes. Yeah. I got my medication. At the pharmacy where I, where my hospital was because my otherwise my mom would have to go all over town to fill it was just easier but I also had my ibuprofen on hand so it feels like we're being led back to it happened in the stores I'm just debunking the thing Bartz also says in the video that the task force 2 electric boogaloo was started in late 2008 or early 2009 because he reached out to him. 
The sting for Jim Lewis started in 2007. Wow. And why does he claim that they opened it? Because after 25 years, you can do Freedom of Information Act. And that they're keeping it open because they don't want anyone to do a Freedom of Information Act. What does that mean, that they can release any details? I don't know how it works for the feds. And they can also just reclassify the documents. They keep doing it with Martin Luther King. But that's why, like, when the new things come out, it's because the 25 years is up. But I don't exactly know how it works. But I'm not inclined to think that's why they reopened the case. I'm inclined to think they reopened the case because this is the Moby Dick for these FBI agents. And they want to solve the case. I'm also not inclined to think that if they were in cahoots with Johnson and Johnson, like they put the check in a file somewhere. Yeah, it just doesn't, that just doesn't seem possible. But the other part where I'm like, maybe it is possible because it's like, who is this? sophisticated to get away with this in 1982, but maybe not because the technology was not there to catch them. We're going to get that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, I just want to say this is some sloppy work by Bartz and he wrote 500 page book on this. He should know the facts. Now he had other bullshit. I posted it on a group and I just, debunked it one by one because it was just ridiculous i'll put it in the show notes if you guys want to see it now oh because one of the other things that he thinks is that somebody from the fda left and went and worked in someone like a johnson and johnson holding like when this person knew this person they're rich elite people and they're in similar areas of course there's going to be job slide overs yeah It's just how the world works. People leave their government job for a high-paying corporate job all the time. I don't think they're engaged in conspiracies. It's not up to stuff, but it's not like this massive conspiracy web. It just, that would be, I feel like that would be very hard to achieve. It would be very hard to achieve. And here's the thing with the Martin Luther King, I'm not going to, there are, things the government has done that is not great but they had a governmental reason for doing it and we know about them i ran contra we know about it can tell a pro we know about it well the tylenol thing does not seem <laughs> that seems like a very small scale thing that like 120 government agencies and police forces collaborated to do this thing that harmed less than 10 people. So it's... Yes! I'm going to go back to this DOJ thing. This was 2013. The federal government, because they make money, they fined them, Johnson & Johnson, $2.2 billion dollars. On fraud and misbrand, they would have made money. Yeah. Now, we have one other person who 
really likes this theory. And that is our buddy, Jimbo Lewis himself. And because he's crazy, he's actually the most gifted in the realm of conspiracy. Remember in the last episode, I wondered how he hasn't been a guest on Alex Jones. Okay. He hasn't. But first on his website, he shares other times that Johnson and Johnson screwed up in terms of vaginal meshes, talcum powder, and the COVID jab. What makes this not a conspiracy is we know about it. But there's something there to work with. See where I'm going? Yeah, we do we know about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, we know about it, but if they're covering up. That's just what we know about. Come on. There's enough truth there. The good conspiracy starts with a little bit of truth. Or there's a paper somewhere, just the paper that what you're saying about it doesn't really say what it says. But perhaps the most compelling thing, and this is what really, this is the tab on his website that started this whole journey for me. He has a tab on DuPage County, specifically prosecutorial misconduct. Okay. So anyone who doesn't know, there was a period of time when DuPage County was a hotbed of wrongful convictions. And Jim Lewis targets in on one person, John, with whom you and I can say we attended the same party. Oh. Rolando Cruz. Oh, Yeah, he talks about how the DuPage police officers and the prosecutions have these wrongful convictions. And that is not wrong. There's no lie there. In fact, that is in part why George Ryan commuted the sentences of everyone on death row. Yes. And I was lucky enough that Seymour Simon sent me his correspondences, copies of them with George Ryan. Basically, until we can sort through this mess, you can't kill anyone. And that was impactful on George Ryan. I'm not making up that that's why George Ryan did that. Like, it was a thing. You can see where the slivers, especially in someone like Jimbo Lewis's brain, would bring him there. Here's where critical thinking overrides conspiracy brain. They declined to prosecute Lewis. What makes conspiracy theories dangerous is they offer enough truth that if one fails to objectively examine and fact check, that liver offers the appearance of legitimacy. But they declined to prosecute him on multiple occasions. They declined to prosecute. And, but the overzealous prosecutions and the bad policing, it also got exposed. There is a method of interrogation called the Reed method. And it is where you 
take people, usually the vulnerable, and that's where you do things like, oh, you said this, but really it's this. Which they did with Jim Lewis on the uh, the flipping when did he write the letter again they opted not to try lewis this dude oh and they let many other people who didn't do anything i'm not saying anything but yes yep no it's also worth noting that they claim because j and j burned the pills after they tested them, they were afraid people were going to steal the pills. And this reminds me of Sandy Hook truthers. They had a thing where they burned down the house and they were convinced it was just proof that I don't even know. I can't get into it, but it's like that. So the last element is the media. So I could go on debunking this. I just want the Red Orchid Theater to do a production of the musical with Michael Shannon, Tracy Letts, Bozo the Clown, and Sven Gulli, staged in the North and Wells Walgreens, and Wilco can be the orchestra. Done. And just so I can sleep, do you, is there somebody in CPD, FBI, <laughs> FFA, Future Farmers of America, that uh-huh. is working, that still has any kind of investment in this case. I think just to finish it. I think that's it. It's an open case, but I don't think anybody has. I don't think the FBI is out of it now. And there's not a person any there's not a there's not a human anymore that has really a reason to push it. Yeah. You know? No, they just want to solve it so they're doing the DNA. So this brings me to my final thoughts. And I think this is really important. People especially this day and age, try to put past events into a current context. Like today, we survey all the time. Back then, they only surveilled you if you wrote a check. We benefit from better technology and better crime scene protocols, and we cannot apply 2023 thinking and operating, or even 2012 thinking and operating, to something that happened in 1982. We put legislation and things in a context of what we know now. And it doesn't work on history. The other thing that strikes me, and I always say, I'll form an opinion 18 months to two years or longer. Because it takes that long to have all the information. Yes. Yeah. It's okay to not know something. Yeah. The only thing, yeah, the only thing I would add on, I'm agreeing with you, but the only thing I would add on is just like all of that historical, like institutionalized racism and corruption and all of that things, all of those Mm -hmm. things that we are more aware of now, I hope, I say that, I say that and I believe it, Mm -hmm. but they were just assumed so I'm liking you taking everything everybody says with a grain of salt and even going over to the freaking conspiracy theorists. And, okay, this is what they said. Here are some points on them. So it's helpful to get the 360 degree, but this one is a weird one, Alyssa. That yeah, it's so it's weird. It's really weird and unsolved. 
it's weird and unsoft. I was, was getting my hair cut today and I was telling my hairdresser about it because, you know, it's what I do. And he's, who do you think did it? I think we're going to have a deathbed confession. Oh, that's what I think. Or. I know one of the things that I think, and I don't want to get into it so much, but it's, I see younger people talking about don't ask, don't tell without having the context of at that point in time, it was the best option there was. There wasn't another other than just, yeah, I'm not saying it was a good option, but it was the only one there was. Yes, yes. And in that same frame, I'm not saying, I don't think that I would say I approve of those people who came up with that, but Mm -hmm. contextualizing what situation everybody was in is important. This is the resources we had, and this is the resources. Yes. This is where, how far I think, and it's one of the things of being older is to know the context of things and be like, it sucked, but it was the most thing. It was the farthest they could go at the time. Yeah. And that's why it's worth it to revisit it. Right. That's right. What you're doing, especially with this particular subject, it's like, it is worth it to revisit it with a different lens than they had in 1982 because mm-hmm. as we comb through it we could perhaps find something different the other thing it's insulting to chicago journal like every journalist in chicago just laid down for this conspiracy theory mike royko was like wait hold on yeah yeah, yeah. come on y'all yeah so yeah so that's why I think it's important, and that's why it's a weird story. It's an unsolved story. Maybe we'll do a breaking news someday. And I think it points to like what we see with COVID and people just wanting in the early days of COVID to know something, and they couldn't just sit with not knowing. Yeah, I did think of that earlier in this conversation. I totally did, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts about this before we wrap up? I don't, but yeah, I like the idea of some point of breaking news or breaking thoughts sometime in the future. It's, yeah, God bless them. God bless those families. Yeah. All right. John, I want to thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And for listeners who don't know, John and I met in the theater school almost 30 years ago. I hate to think that. And... I booked 20 and I'm like, I... <laughs> change it to 20 in post. What? Change it to 20 years in post. Okay. And we also had our first office job together. And I especially want to shout out to our mutual friends who we know from theater school and from work who are listening. We love your support. And to everyone listening, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give a five-star review faster than Alex Jones can come up with a conspiracy after a mass shooting. Follow me on all the socials at omalortpod. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.